From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Benta Brooklyn. Our colleague Caitlin Kim is with us this week. She's CPR's reporter in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being here. Hi. Glad to have you, Caitlin. So let me ask you both something. What does the date May 6th mean to you? Hmm. I would say right now, days don't even mean much to me. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of what a date means. May 6th was supposed to be sine die. Um, what exactly is sine die? It's it's actually the end of the state's legislative session. So typically it would be 120 days after the start date. Mm. Which would have been just about two weeks ago now. We are recording this on Thursday, May 21st. And we're actually getting ready to go back into the legislature now for who knows how long. This is the time of year where normally... I think we'd be taking a short breather after the end of session, and we'd be so relieved that all those late nights and working around the clock were behind us, uh, Mm -hmm. gearing up for the June 30th U.S. Senate primary, which we're still doing, but we'll we'll do that in the midst of the session. And Caitlin, what's going on in your world right now instead of whatever was normally supposed to happen? Instead of what was normally supposed to happen? (laughs) I mean, normally I would actually get to be in Colorado talking to voters. Instead, I'm Mm -hmm. sort of talking to... Congress people when they show up in Washington, D.C. I think that here in Colorado, we're going to have the rest of the session be really unlike anything that we've seen in in recent memory. State lawmakers are going to spend most of the next three weeks or so basically dismantling the state's budget and rebuilding it from the ground up with billions of dollars less in spending. In this week's episode, we'll dive into some of the issues around the session resuming in a couple of different ways. And the politics of this and how the legislature is actually going to work during a pandemic, which is going to have some really strange and interesting wrinkles. And of course, Congress has a role to play in this. You know, the big question is whether they're actually going to do anything to help states and local governments with their budget holes. Before we get to all that, though, I wanted to talk about this really interesting story that Caitlin did this week about a Joe Biden campaign event that you attended, but I'm not actually sure if attended is the the right word or not. Yeah, um, attended probably isn't the right word. I felt like I was crashing some Zoom meetings. Um, Dr. Jill Biden was doing a virtual campaign swing through Colorado, and even she alluded to the fact that this is not how things are normally done. I'm so pleased to be with you here today, even if I can't actually be there in Colorado Springs with you. So this was actually a military spouses roundtable. So she was talking with spouses from different bases in Colorado, from Army, Navy, Air Force. You know, it was both um, comforting and surreal. Like, it was comforting because this is what you kind of expect from a campaign stop. You know, there was music playing while you were waiting for the event to start. There were glowing Uh introductions. It was an opportunity for Biden, who was a surrogate for her husband, Joe, to talk about him and to talk about, you know, the issues that are important to both of them. Right. But then it was so surreal because you're just watching it, or at least I was, alone. You know, there are no crowds. <laughs> there's no applause. It's it's all kind of stripped down to the bare bones. And that was definitely different. That feels stranger in a different way than a normal campaign event, because usually it's people trying to act normal in front of a ton of cameras, and now it's people trying to act normal alone in their houses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it could also increase the possibility for catching someone off guard or a viral moment, because hmm. things in a way are more amplified with a close-up shot via Zoom. Yeah. I recently covered a forum between the two Democratic candidates running for U.S. Senate, 
former Governor John Hickenlooper and former State House Speaker Andrew Romanoff. A, a lot of people signed up to watch that, 800 people. And Republicans quickly seized on a moment where Hickenlooper, the perceived frontrunner in that race, mm-hmm. had kind of an awkward situation where he was taking a long, confused-seeming pause. Governor Hickenlooper, what would you do to reassert Congress's role? Um, first, I think that... that uh, didn't... Ah. Sorry, I, I was on the um, reassert the role. I lost my track of my questions. In a typical forum where not as many people from the opposition may actually be in the room at that moment with a different shot, I don't know if it would have gained the traction that it did. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a viral moment, but it just is a slightly different dynamic in those forums with Zoom. So it's not just the uh, the events either. We're also seeing campaigns adapt to virtual field organizing. I got a tour of the the Trump software, which is called Trump Talk, that they're using to organize volunteers. And it's basically a web-based interface that they're using to have volunteers auto-dial through a phone list and talk to other Republican or likely Republican voters. And I'll play you a clip of John Pence explaining how it works. John Pence is the vice president's nephew and the deputy executive director of the campaign. Begin by putting the number of calls you wish to complete today for President Trump and Republicans. Hit submit. This is just a fun way to set a goal for the day. Nothing will happen if you don't reach that goal for the day. And apparently people have been taking them up on this opportunity. The Trump campaign says that they've contacted a million Coloradans since they went virtual in March. That's one plus side I've heard from campaigns during the era of coronavirus is that they do have time to make more phone calls, volunteers, staff, and then also candidates for fundraising, which is a big part of running for office. If they actually master how to do it, it probably lets them create a more curated or, or kind of edited event. Yeah, I, I would say probably the downside is really for us. It just it, it limits our opportunity to actually talk to people and, and find out what they feel about the candidates. Like you said earlier, Caitlin, it's still just kind of awkward. And so I think they still got some work to do to make these events feel more natural. So that's some of the November campaigns warming up in Colorado and looking really different than usual. But in a weird way, the elections might be one of the most normal things happening in politics right now. I've spent a lot of the last couple of weeks watching the Joint Budget Committee. That's a group of some of the most influential lawmakers in the state of Colorado. And they've been going through this really detailed and at times confusing, but also gut-wrenching process where they're trying to find billions of dollars of budget cuts in the state government. You know, this is controlled by Democrats, but they've been unweaving a lot of Democratic priorities because they need the money. One moment that stood out to me was Denea Escar, the chair of the JBC, taking a moment to argue for these support programs for people with substance use issues. And it really encapsulated the whole debate for me. This treatment program has literally saved lives in Southern Colorado. And I know that we could say that about any of the opioid treatment programs. But I, I mean, I'm looking at this. I know we need to take haircuts from everywhere, but I don't like OSPB's idea of just taking it all. I wouldn't want to. I, I feel like if we took all the funding. When we're going through cuts this deep, there's nothing that's off limits. Education and health care do make up the largest part of the state's discretionary spending. So schools and health and social programs 
are especially vulnerable to cuts because there's no way to avoid it when we have a shortfall in the billions of dollars. And I think they're hoping that the feds and to some extent nonprofits pick up some of the slack for now. Well, the federal stimulus money, the CARES Act, did inject about $1.7 billion for state and local governments. Um, The state is using most of that money, but it must be used for direct COVID-19 expenses. So there are restrictions. Right. And there are some members in Congress that are trying to sort of loosen those restrictions. The Fed spent almost $3 trillion trying to fight the coronavirus and to deal with the economic fallout from the virus. Mm. Right now, they're looking forward to another bill, but there doesn't seem to be that same sense of urgency that accompanied the last four, at least when it comes to Republican leaders. They want to pause, even as people, local governments, um, and businesses continue to clamor for more help. So basically, everyone is in for a long wait before uh, more federal help is coming. Democrats were waiting to see what a second federal stimulus wave would look like before coming back into session. But we don't have time for that because the next fiscal year starts on July 1st and Colorado has to pass a balanced budget with or without more federal money coming in. So it'll be really interesting to see how this debate plays out when it now includes the full legislature instead of just those handful of JBC members. One topic I'll be watching is K-12 education, where the JBC has considered some really dramatic changes to how school funding works in Colorado, cutting funding for wealthy districts or leaning on local districts to pay more of the school's bill instead of the state potentially paying as much as it does. State lawmakers have debated for years if there are ways to change how Colorado funds K through 12 schools, but Mm. it's such a complicated topic. It's very controversial. Mm -hmm. It's never gotten any traction. So it would be crazy if they suddenly had the will to do this in the middle of a crisis like this. Well, I have been haunting the budget committee and watching them from afar virtually over my computer. Benta, you have been keeping track of the actual logistics of what's about to happen next, and I would love for you to catch us up on where things stand right now. Is it still the same situation we talked about last week? They're not going to require masks, no mandatory distancing, temperature checks, but you can still enter the building if you still have a temperature, that kind of thing? That's right. Legislative leaders in both parties have now adopted those informal rules, and there may be some plexiglass installed in parts of the Capitol in areas where social distancing isn't possible. The idea is that lawmakers will sit farther apart and maintain an appropriate social distance in the legislative chambers. In the House, Mm. some lawmakers are voluntarily agreeing to sit in the public viewing gallery so there's more room. But yes, in the chamber, they're asking lawmakers to wear masks, but it's not mandated. If someone did have a temperature, a member of the public, and still wanted to enter the Capitol building, They'd be encouraged not to, but there's no enforcement to stop them from doing that or to require a member of the public to put on a mask. What about the idea of working remotely? Will all the lawmakers have to come to the Capitol to do all their voting and official business? Or is there going to be some way to accommodate people who don't want to come in? Democrats control both legislative chambers, and each chamber is working on separate rules to allow some legislators to work remotely and likely vote remotely. I don't think it will be a huge number of lawmakers, but there's definitely a few that have health issues either personally or family members and don't feel comfortable coming into the Capitol in person. The idea will get pushed back and has already gotten pushed back from Republicans who don't feel it's constitutional. 
You know, that sounds a lot like what's happening in Washington, D.C. Last week, the House actually passed a measure that would allow for temporary remote voting. One member would hold voting proxies for as many as 10 of their colleagues. It passed along party lines. I'm assuming Democrats are the ones who liked that. Yes, it was it was the Democratic controlled House passed that. Ah. The Republicans who are in the minority in the House were adamantly against it, you know, calling it unconstitutional, sort of you know, echoing back to what Bento was saying. The Senate, though, is a different story. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, this was something that did come up early on, the idea of remote voting at the start of the pandemic. But Mitch McConnell has been fairly adamant that that was not going to be considered. He thinks senators are essential, and it is their duty to be there in person to vote and to hold hearings. Um, The other way they've been keeping distance in Congress is that the House and the Senate haven't actually been in session at the same time. (laughs) So one party, one one chamber is there, they do their business and leave, and then the the Senate or the House usually will come back for a day or two just to vote and then Hmm. get out of town again. (laughs) Yeah, I think what's one thing that's really different from the state legislature to the U.S. Capitol is our lawmakers are in the chamber together all day, every day, unless they're in committee hearings. So people are in really close quarters. And both parties in Colorado were pretty adamant that they wanted to keep the state capitol open to the public. So there will be some places for people to observe in person. Yeah, so I think that's actually a a big difference from how Congress is operating, because the public is still not allowed back into the building. Um, Everything is just sort of senators, staffers, you know, press, and that's about it. Well, I'm curious here in Colorado, now that we're out in uncharted territory, Benta, how long do you think we'll actually be in session? Are they going to do anything other than the budget? The budget and the School Finance Act are a must. But remember, the session has just been on a pause. It was temporarily adjourned. So that means the hundreds of bills that were in the process are still in the process. They're still alive. So that could mean committee hearings and floor debates. I'm curious how in alignment lawmakers will be about going and killing their bills off. How many will put up a fight for things they think they really wanted to get done? It'll be interesting to see. And the the technical term when you kill a bill is to postpone it indefinitely. Well, that's a euphemism. Yeah, and sometimes sponsors will say that, you know, I'm going to recommend postponing indefinitely my own bill. I think we'll see that happen frequently. Some measures may also be voted down. And then keep in mind, lawmakers could introduce new bills that may be coronavirus related or something that they want to get passed that wasn't already in the works. Congress doesn't necessarily say postpone indefinitely, but this is also something that they're thinking about in Washington as well, because there are a lot of bills that are probably not going to see the light of day because of coronavirus. Um, Congress has been working on some of the must-pass legislation, like they're going to start talking about and debating the National Defense Reauthorization Act. And there's the possibility of other coronavirus bills, but like the Senate doesn't have a lot of these COVID bills coming up. So they're passing some of the easy-to-pass bills that don't require a lot of debate, like uh, Senator Cory Gardner's bill to establish 988 as a national suicide hotline number. Otherwise, you know, they're just doing sort of trying to do business as usual, like voting on confirmations and nominations because there is disagreement in that chamber on what to do next on coronavirus. Actually, in Congress, Mm. usually before the August break is where they get most of the legislating done because everyone is going to be campaigning uh, from Mm. August to November. Well, that's something that I've noticed for sure here in Colorado. It was all happy kumbaya times when there wasn't much to debate because they were out of session. But as we've gotten closer to session, the splits have become more evident.
Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I thought we could wrap up with our, our usual final segment, which is called, wait, what? Normally, this segment, as you might know, is all about surprising or unusual moments. I'm going to take the liberty of taking a slightly different definition this time. There's a lot of moments listening to the Joint Budget Committee that I literally just had to say, wait, what? Because, oh my God, Colorado State Finance is so complicated. I thought I would just play you some of the deep, deep technical cuts and stuff that I had to try to figure out. Oh gosh. Let's see how this sounds. I'm not even expecting you to laugh or be amused by this. I just wanted to share what I'm experiencing. Uh, Thank you, Madam Chair. I move the OSPB comeback on the college Kickstarter program. Proper motion. Is there any objection to that motion? Seeing two, Representative Ransom and Senator Rankin, that motion passes, but I'm afraid the bill dies then. The bill, would it need a bill? If we do OSPB's motion, do we need a bill, Ms. Pickle? Um, yes, Madam Chair. I think no matter what you do, you need a bill. This is why I'm glad you were covering that this week and not me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that scene in The Matrix where he's like, I don't even see the code anymore. I see, I see whatever's going on in The Matrix. That's how I feel. I don't even see the legislative flim-flam. I just see the deeper discussion. I think it's, it, it does make it especially hard to cover budget and numbers stories for radio. <laughs> especially, I remember in journalism school, I was told I could only use three numbers per story. And uh, that's something <laughs> I always try to think about. But that's, it can be pretty impossible when you're doing budget stories. That is it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleagues Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim. This episode was edited by Megan Verlee and produced by Shane Rumsey. Our executive producer is Rachel Estabrook. CPR's head of audio innovations is Brad Turner, who also composed our theme music. If you want to keep up with us on everything we've discussed this week and more, find us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm at Benta Berkland. I'm at Caitlin Kim. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News. I have a pigeon staring at me. A pigeon? Yeah, a pigeon's on my windowsill staring at me. Very New York. Yeah.